Turn with me, if you will, this evening to the 88th Psalm. Psalm number 88. This psalm was meant for singing, and as you can see there at the top, it begins with the same sort of information regarding its author and its music that we find at the bottom of the page when we sing from our hymnals. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, Amaskil of Heman the Ezrahite. And then the text that is to be sung reads as follows. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of my affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me all together. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Father, as we come to this difficult psalm, I pray that you would make it plain to us, that you would teach us what there is to garner from these words, even these hard words. Speak to us tonight, we pray. Give us direction. Give us even hope from what we consider in Psalm 88 tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you will agree with me that Heman, the Ezraite, has written a very unhappy song here. Indeed, the music to which it was set must surely have been written in a minor key because the lyrics are so dark, so filled with angst, this psalm is. But for the fact that it's a prayer, the tone of the psalm reminds me of the grunge music of my high school days. Everything is black for the psalmist here. 
Now, Heman doesn't tell us exactly why that is so, exactly why things are so bleak for him. He doesn't let us in on exactly what is happening that leads him to say that he has had enough, verse 3, and that he is ready to die. We don't know. Is it some outward circumstance in his life, something that has happened to him or to his family that has him now laid so low? Or is he maybe having a bout with what we would today call depression? Is he perhaps under God's discipline? Or could it be that he was physically ill with cancer or such like? The answer is we don't know for sure because Heman doesn't tell us what it was that brought him so low. He just speaks about how low he is and asks the Lord to help. And maybe it's a good thing he doesn't tell us. Maybe it's a God thing. Maybe the particular circumstances of the psalmist's sorrow are left hidden from us so that we will better be able to apply his lament to our own sorrows. In other words, if he had told us that the psalm was written after the death of a child or during a bout with cancer or clinical depression, then we might say to ourselves, well, I've never been through that, but I'm sure glad this psalm is here for those people who have. But the psalm is more general than that, isn't it? So maybe it's just a little more readily adaptable to all our various sorrows, to every situation in which a child of God feels like he or she is ready to die, to the various circumstances in which we may feel like the psalmist that the Lord is not listening to our prayers either. You may have felt like that yourself sometimes. The words of this psalm may sound familiar to you. Whatever the circumstances from which Heman writes, a few things are clear here. The first is that this is no minor trouble. Heman feels like he is about to die, verses 3 through 5. For my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. So whatever the trouble is, Heman is in very deep waters. That's number one. And then number two, he feels that God is the one who has brought him there. Did you notice that in verses 6 through 8? You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. And we see the same sort of thing down beginning in verse 15. I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me, and so on. So I'm in deep waters, number one. And number two, Lord, you are the one who's put me there. And then number three, he says, and you won't help me. Verses 13 and 14. But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I'm in deep waters and you, Lord, have put me there and you're not helping me. And number four, neither are my friends. Verse eight, you have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I'm shut up and cannot go out. Verse 18, you have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are 
in darkness. My acquaintances are in darkness. What a way for the psalm to end, huh? Not with a but God, not with a word of hope in the midst of his despair and his difficulty, but by saying my acquaintances are in darkness. In fact, that's really the key word for the entire psalm, I think. Darkness. That's what this psalm is about. But surely that's not the way it's supposed to end, is it? That's not what makes for a good story. Yes, let all the darkness hang out. Put all your hopelessness on the table before the Lord. But in the end, there's supposed to be resolution, isn't there? In the end, there's supposed to be faith. There's supposed to be help. There's supposed to be answered prayer. Isn't that how stories are supposed to end? In the end, the king is supposed to win the final battle. The criminal is supposed to be found out. The mystery is supposed to be solved. The couple is supposed to fall in love. The family is supposed to be reunited. The hero is supposed to live to old age or at least die gloriously, but not this. You don't end the story with no resolution, do you? But that's what the psalmist does here. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. End of psalm. In fact, let me just call your attention to something very salutary about Psalm 88. Not only is there no resolution at the end of the psalm, but there's not much, of, if any, hope in the rest of the psalm either. Did you notice that as we read? Though the psalmist at least has faith enough to pray, he never expresses in this psalm any confidence that his prayers are being heard. Quite the opposite, in fact, in verses 13 and 14. And though he refers to the Lord as the God of my salvation in verse 1, he never once expresses any certainty that God will save him now. Did you notice that in the psalm? There's no note of confidence, no sense of hope or expectation, no but God to counterbalance the depth of his trouble. It's just darkness and despair from beginning to end. I have no friends. I have no help from heaven. I have no future. Not once does the psalmist voice any confidence that God will meet him in his troubles, that God will yet be faithful. And I think I'm correct in saying that among all the psalms, Psalm 88 is unique in this regard. You double-check that as you read the psalms for yourself, but I think this may be the only psalm that has no real note of hope, no silver lining at all behind the clouds. There's nothing in Psalm 88 that we find, like we find, for instance, in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, in the midst of his despair, the psalmist is still able to say, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Twice in Psalm 42, the psalmist interrupts his groaning to preach to himself this hope, to say, I shall again praise the Lord. But there's no such interruption here. There's no such hope here. Now, that's not to say that there actually was no hope for the psalmist, only that it seems that he never acknowledges it and perhaps doesn't even see it. So this dark poem reminds me of a a field of grain after a heavy hailstorm. The shoots of the psalmist's faith are snapped in half and flattened on the ground, and his soul is almost wholly barren, of any consolation. And when we look at this kind of psalm, this kind of landscape, I think it's legitimate to ask tonight, what can we really glean from such a destitute field? What can we really, really take away from such a forlorn psalm? 
Well, let me just mention a few items that I think will help us. First of all, we may garner from this psalm a dose of reality. A dose of reality. This psalm, like many others in the collection, reminds us that we live in a real world and that in the real world in which we live, there is brokenness and curse and we are fallen and so is our world. Unlike in the movies, the hard facts of this life are not always resolved within 120 minutes, are they? The world in which we live is under a curse. And because it is, life is often hard or painful or perplexing, disappointing, unpredictable, grievous, tedious, and so on. And sometimes it can be a continual spate of those kinds of things for year after year after year. And so if we live long enough in the world, we will find ourselves weeping or lamenting or pleading for help like the psalmist is here. Maybe sometimes we'll even find ourselves asking God, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? And these, of course, are the very sorts of reaction that we find in God's people all throughout the psalms. Many, many of the psalms were written during times of great trial, weren't they? Many of them are laments, cries of anguish. Many of them must be sung, as it were, in a minor key. And as such, many of them present us with a dose of reality concerning the cursedness of this fallen world. When we read and when we sing the Psalms, we're reminded that the world we live in really is broken. Psalm 88 certainly reminds us of that fact. We don't know what the psalmist's particular sorrows may have been, but many of us, I think, can relate to his anguish, to his loneliness, to his pleading for heavenly help, and we can imagine the brokenness of his circumstances because we live under the same curse that he did. Some of you have prayed similar prayers to this one, and you know what it is to be here where he was, and you know that this world is broken. And it's a good thing for us to be reminded of that. It's a good thing for us to be reminded of the curse from time to time. It's a good thing to break away from modern superficialities and to set aside the happy endings that non-reality television makes us think are normal and to deal with the fact that, frankly, we are no longer living in the Garden of Eden. Even our prayer requests tonight prove that, don't they? So many things that are not what they ought to be. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that life is just one long litany of burdens and frustrations and it's really not worth living. There is much about life in this world that has retained a great deal of the luster that God gave to us and to our planet in the beginning. Our families, our gardens, the mountains, the whiteness of the snow... The coming of the spring, the singing of the birds, the making of music, all these things are gifts from God, right? And heartily to be enjoyed. But psalms like this one do remind us that it's not all joy and no pain in this world. Psalms like this do give us a dose of reality. And this particular song gives us a dose of reality, not only in presenting to us the fact of human suffering, which it does, but also it gives us a dose of reality by showing us the way in which sometimes human beings respond to suffering. This psalm not only gives us a dose of reality by showing us the fact of human suffering, but also by showing us the very real way, the very raw way in which human beings sometimes respond to it. 
Psalm 88 reminds us, in other words, that human beings, even believing human beings, do not always respond to their suffering with triumphant hope in God. Because here is a man, Heman, the Ezraite, who I think is surely a believer. He calls God the God of my salvation. He has faith enough to pray, at least. And yet he does not have enough faith to see a way forward. His faith isn't strong enough here to believe that God is really paying him any mind at all. And that's a dose of reality too, isn't it? The curse on planet Earth extends to us too. We don't always respond like we ought. Even as people of faith, we don't always respond in faith. Even when we've come to faith, even when God has become the God of our salvation, even when he has put a new heart within us, the old nature still lingers, doesn't it? Unbelief still intrudes itself sometimes, doesn't it? And so that this psalm, dark as it is, may not sound all that unfamiliar to many of us because we ourselves have been there or we've loved someone who has and we have either prayed or overheard these very sorts of prayers. Verses 13 and 14, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help and in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Ever prayed like that? God, why aren't you answering? You ever heard someone pray like that? That's not the kind of prayer that is outside the pale of Christian faith. But it's one that is very genuinely prayed by many of God's own people. And if we have never been there yet, if we've never been on the floor yet with Heman the Ezraite, maybe this psalm will at least keep us from slapping on the wrist those who have. We don't commend everything that he says in this psalm, but what he says was very real to him, and it's very real to many Christian people today. My soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol. And blessed is the church and the Christian friend who recognizes that even a person of faith can sometimes pray like that. So this psalm does give us a dose of reality, not only about the fallen world in which we live, but also about the very real difficulty that even Christians can sometimes have of navigating that world with faith. But now, secondly, let me point out that Psalm 88 not only gives us a dose of reality, but it also gives us permission to be honest. Permission to be honest. I've told you before about an interview I listened to with a fellow named Carl Truman who teaches at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, in which he talked about a time in his younger years when he was unemployed and depressed and how God provided balm to his troubled soul by means of the Psalms. You can listen to that interview at ninemarks.org, and I'd encourage you to do so because what he says about the Psalms is so helpful. In fact, It wasn't so much what the Psalms said to him that seems to have been the key, but what the Psalms permitted him to say to God. The Psalms, he said, and particularly I think these Psalms of lament, gave him a kind of paradigm in his discouragement for how to approach God, even in the dark days. The Psalms showed him that it was actually okay, he said, for him to voice his questions 
and his doubts and his fears and his raw emotions to the Lord. Those things, according to the example of various psalmists, are not off limits. We have permission to lament. We have permission in the Psalms to ask why and even to express our doubts as the psalmist does here. We have permission to bring all of these things before the throne of grace. Have you noticed this about the Psalms? That sometimes they say things to God that we might think a pious Christian ought never dare say aloud. They don't do it angrily, mind you, or irreverently at all, and we must note that well, but the Psalms are often raw and completely honest with God, even to the point sometimes of wondering why he is not doing anything more to help his people. And in recording such emotions and questions and doubts in the inspired pages of Holy Scripture, the Psalms give us permission, Truman says, to come to God with the same sorts of emotions and questions and doubts. And I think Psalm 88 has been placed within the Psalter to give us just that sort of permission, to give us permission, like the psalmist, to lament and to bring our doubts and despair to the Lord, even when we don't see any light at the end of the tunnel to praise him for. Now, just listen carefully to an important distinction in this regard, though. To say that the Psalms give us permission to bring our doubts and despairs before the Lord is not the same as to say that it is commendable to have those doubts and despairs. Note that well. Psalm 88 has not been placed in the Psalter to encourage the kind of doubting that we find in verses 13 and 14 or to assure us that despair is a normal and good thing for the believer. It's not. But I think the Psalm is here to say to us, if you are doubting, if you are despairing, it's okay to come to God and tell him so. Do you see the difference? I don't think we are to imitate the psalmist's doubts and despair, but we are to be keen enough observers of reality and of the psalms to know that these things sometimes will come into our lives. We will sometimes doubt. We will sometimes despair, even as believers. And we're to learn from Psalm 88 that when that happens, when we do that, it is okay to tell God about it. It is okay to ask him questions. It is okay to tell him that we're not sure what he's doing. Now, we mustn't shake our fists in his face or accuse him or put our fingers in his chest or vent our anger upon our maker. That is not the tone of the psalmist's voice here. and It's never appropriate for a believer. But it is okay to say through tears, and this psalmist isn't the only one in the Bible to say such things, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know if I can take this anymore, verse 3. I feel like I'm about to die, verses 4 and 5. Like you've dropped me in a pit, verse 6. And when I pray, verses 13 and 14, I don't seem to get any answers. Why do you hide your face from me? Has it ever occurred to you that it's okay for you to be that honest with God, that raw before him, even to confess that you can't seem to see any answers at all to your prayers? Psalm 88 gives us permission to be that honest with our God even to the extent, if we can do it reverently, of saying to God, verses 6 and 7, you have put me in the lowest pit, in 
dark places and the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Now let me say this as a bit of an aside, but a vitally important one. If you're going to allow yourself the freedom to speak to God this way, if you're going to ask God why, if you're going to say to him, you have put me in the lowest pit, and you don't seem to be answering my prayers, if you're going to speak to the Lord in these ways, you must be willing also to hear what he may say to you in reply. He may, of course, say to you, Oh, daughter, I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but I am causing all things to work together for good in your life. Just hang on and you'll see. But he may also say, the reason why I put you in that pit is because you're hard-headed and stubborn, and I'm going to leave you there until you're ready to listen. And that's why I'm not answering your prayers either, because you need to learn some lessons that you will not learn unless I leave you in trouble for a while. Now, I don't know if that's what God was doing in this psalmist's life, but it may be sometimes what he's doing in ours. And whatever the case may be, if you're going to make use of your permission to be honest with God, then you must be prepared for him to be honest with you as well. But that's an aside, as I say. The main things to note so far are that Psalm 88 gives us both a dose of reality and permission to be honest with God in the midst of it. And now let me give you one final lesson from Psalm 88. Namely, that Psalm 88 gives us incentive to remember eternity. A dose of reality, permission to be honest with God, but also incentive to remember, to fix our thoughts on eternity. Psalm 88 gives us incentive to focus our minds even more attentively on the life beyond this one. And we learn that lesson, it seems to me, in kind of a roundabout way here by noticing how Heman's attention seemed not to be fixed on eternity. I think that's a fair statement to make about the psalmist's demeanor here, especially in verses 10, 11, and 12. He seems to be so focused on the problems of this life and particularly on needing a solution to those problems in this life that perhaps he couldn't see the bigger picture. Did you notice that in verses 10 through 12? Let me read them to you again. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You see what he's saying there? He's saying in verses 3 and following, I feel like I'm about to die. In verse 9, I'm crying to you for help. But how can you help me, verse 10, if you let me die? And how can I praise you for your help if you let me die? And therefore, by implication, you've got to fix this problem before I die or you won't have it fixed at all. And you won't get the praise at all. Now, in some ways, that's a good argument, right? I want you to get the praise, so help me before this situation gets beyond the point of no return. And that would be a very convincing argument if this life were actually all there is. All of verses 10 through 12 would be legitimate if God couldn't actually perform wonders for the dead, verse 10. And if departed spirits couldn't, actually praise him in the second half of the verse. 
And yet those things are not true, are they? The psalmist's premises in verses 10 through 12 are faulty, are they not? He's speaking as if, as if this life were all there really is, as if the life beyond really was a land of forgetfulness, as if the grave were the end of God's dealings with mankind. Now, I don't know if he actually believed that deep down or if this was just his despair talking. I'd like to think it was the latter. I'd find it hard to imagine the psalmist, weak as his faith is right now, actually believing that the grave is the end. But even if he didn't ultimately believe that, he's entertaining such thoughts right now, isn't he? And he's acting as if they were true. He's acting as if this life were all there is, as if this life were the only place where his problems can be solved. And I'm sure that that kind of thinking added to his misery. And while I'm not trying to kick him while he's down or suggest that we do the same with people who aren't thinking rightly around us, I do think it's worth noticing that his despair was perhaps exacerbated because he had taken his eyes off of eternity and was acting as if this world's solutions were the only solutions. You've got to rescue me now because if you don't, it will be too late. Not so. You and I, though, both know how prone we are to do the very same thing, aren't we? We might not speak like the psalmist speaks, but we often treat our problems, don't we, as if they must all come to resolution in this life. And we might even be tempted to doubt the Lord's power or his compassion if it does not seem that he's going to do that. Now, this, of course, is one of the prosperity gospel's central errors to put far too much stock in having your best life now. But that sort of thinking is incipient in us all. We all want our best life now, don't we? And when we don't get it, forgetting that eternity awaits us, we sometimes begin to wonder if maybe God has forgotten us. But remember, we live in a fallen world. We live on a planet and deal with people and inhabit bodies, all of which are under a curse. And the Bible is very plain in indicating to us that it is not God's design to reverse that curse completely in this present age. We are looking, says the Apostle Peter, for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's when all the wrongs will be made right. That's when there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. That's when the Lord will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not in this earth, but in the new one. Indeed, the very fact that on that first eternal day we will still have tears in our eyes to be wiped away means that they will not all be wiped away in this world. And we do well to remember that when we find ourselves in the midst of Psalm 88 kinds of lamentation. Cry out to the Lord. He gives you permission to do so, to ask questions, to beg for his help, to be raw with your emotions. But while you're doing all that, remember, this life is not the end. And this world, therefore, the psalmist pleading in verses 10 through 12, notwithstanding, this world is not the only theater in which God may answer your prayers or heal your wounds or remove your problems. I was reading yesterday in a book called The Work of the Pastor 
by the late William Still. And in typical Willie Still fashion, he has this fantastic little quote about the importance of looking beyond this world for God's solutions to all that ails us. He says this, Think of the mess the world is in. Supposing there were gods in other universes, and our God was showing them round his one and telling them what his son came to do 2,000 years ago. He would have a pretty red face, wouldn't he, if he showed them the earth only and not the masses of glorified saints in heaven. Isn't that a good quote? If God was showing someone around the universe and saying, here are the results of what my son did, Willie still says he would have a pretty red face if he showed them the earth only and not the realities that are true in heaven. And I think you get what he's saying. You cannot judge the work of God on behalf of his people solely through what you see of them on the earth because the earth is not their final destiny. On earth, God is not finished with them yet. Now, Mr. Still, of course, makes that point in relation to our sanctification and our living out what Jesus purchased for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. But the same principle is true not only of our sanctification but of our circumstances. You simply cannot judge the work of God. You cannot judge the extent of his care for you. You cannot judge the reality of his answers to your prayer solely by what you see him doing in this life. To do that would be akin to judging a surgeon based only upon what you see of his patients in the recovery room. You walk through there and say, well, what a sad lot of people these are. Every one of them is bruised and sliced up and groggy. What kind of surgeon is this whose patients all turn out this way? Well, we all understand that's lunacy, right? Nobody talks like that because we know that the surgeon's chief goal is not to make his patients look great and feel their best and make a full recovery in the first six hours. He's making sure that they're completely well in six months and six years. And yet sometimes we allow ourselves to think in terms of God's dealings with us that everything should be well with us even while we're still in the sick ward of this present world. And it makes no sense, does it? God's plans for us are much longer term and much greater, incidentally, than we often allow ourselves to remember. So we mustn't be alarmed or bent out of shape if he's not giving us our best life now or even if sometimes he seems to leave us languishing in our worst life now. That's where the psalmist was, right? He was far from his best life. He was was at the bottom of the pit. But that didn't mean he was forgotten. Eternity would tell a different tale. God does not intend to sort out every difficulty in this world. Many of them we may live with all of our days, like Paul's thorn in the flesh, so that we might learn that God's grace is sufficient for us and that his power is is perfected in weakness. And we have to settle these things in our minds. While some of the luster of the Garden of Eden still remains in this world, while there is much to enjoy about the lives God has given us, we're still living under a curse. And we will be until we leave this world or until Jesus returns to it. Praise God, Jesus came that first time and lived without sin and died for sin and rose on the third day so that we might be free of sin's power and free from sin's curse and 
eventually restored to the existence that they had in the Garden of Eden. And praise God that we see the fruits of that already blossoming now. But those freedoms will not reach their fullness in this life. We won't return to the Garden of Eden in this world. The blessings that Christ has purchased for us are only seen in this life in their first fruits. But I has not seen, 1 Corinthians 2.9, I has not seen all that God has prepared for those who love him. And until we see it, we live in this constant minglings of blessing and curse. And sometimes the pendulum of life is going to swing much nearer Psalm 88 than it is to Genesis 1. And we must expect that. We must learn from the dose of reality that we're given in this psalm. And in the days of those darkness, we must make use of the permission that this psalm gives us to pour out our rawest feelings before the Lord. And in it all, we must anchor our souls by having realistic expectations for the limited solutions that are to be granted in this world and by setting our sights on a better country. That is a heavenly one. Father, thank you even for this psalm of despair, for how it sobers us, for the way that it does free us to speak to you as the psalmist spoke to you honestly, and even for the way the psalmist's blind spot teaches us not to have the same in our lives. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on eternity, to fix our eyes on your Son, to believe that if you did not spare your own Son but delivered him over for us all, then no matter what else our circumstances may seem to say for the moment, you will freely give us all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.